This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. Yes, New Zealand delivered a resounding call for change last night. 2020's red tide rolled out and National rode a blue wave to victory. The political landscape of New Zealand has shifted to the right. Not many can say they had a better Saturday night than Christopher Luxon. New Zealand's Prime Minister-elect, National Party leader Christopher Luxon, has vowed to bring down the cost of living and restore law and order. New Zealanders have chosen change and our new government will deliver it and we will get this country back on track. So how did the Labour Party fall so far from the highs of Jacinda Ardern's landslide victory just a few years ago? And what could New Zealand look like under its new leader? Today, New Zealand's Blue Nami. It's Wednesday, the 18th of October. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So Eva, you covered the New Zealand election on the weekend. Tell me how close was it? It was pretty evident early on that um, National was on track to form a government alongside a minor party or two. Eva Corlett is a reporter for Guardian Australia based in Wellington, New Zealand. And it was clear that there was going to be a pretty forceful ejection of the Labour Party. It wasn't going to be able to form a government, even with its traditional coalition partners. Um, We were seeing a lot of its strongholds flipping to blue, um, but also flipping to minor parties on the left, the Greens and Te Pāti Māori. So I think it's quite telling that not not only was Labour bleeding seats to the right, they were also bleeding seats to those further on the left. And its tally was tracking at almost half of its vote in 2020 when it won the election in a landslide. So it, it wasn't close in that respect. And, and analysts even were describing the night as, as a bloodbath for Labour, a nightmare or a blue nami for the National Party. And then just before 11pm... Thank you, everybody, so much for being here tonight. And the outgoing 
Prime Minister Chris Hipkins conceded. Uh, earlier this evening, I called Christopher Luxon to congratulate him on Nationals' results. As it stands, Labour is not in a position to form another government. Soon after, Christopher Luxon left his home in Auckland and he went with his wife, Amanda, and two of his children to a pretty swanky national event party in downtown Auckland. Well, thank you. Thank you. And there it was, you know, a wash in blue. Um, he gave his victory speech to a pretty hyped-up crowd of fellow MPs and supporters. Thank you. Thank you so much, team. Thank you so much. And thank you, New Zealand, because from all over your country, this great country, you have reached for hope and you have voted for change. And and in that speech, he was, as you can imagine, really jubilant and perhaps more animated than we've seen of him on the campaign trail. And I am immensely proud to say that on the numbers tonight, National will be in a position to lead the next government. He emphasised New Zealanders had voted for hope, they'd voted for change, and he repeated that th- the theme that he's been sort of repeating throughout his campaign. Because the promise of New Zealand is quite simply that if you work hard in the best country on planet Earth, you should be able to get ahead. I mean, it, it is a, an interesting turn of events from just a few years ago. New Zealand now has a new prime minister. Who is Christopher Luxon? I mean, it's a good question. I think there was a lot of commentary through the campaign asking that very question because not a lot of people felt like they knew him. But his basic biography is that he is a married father of two adult children He was born and raised in both Christchurch and Auckland, and he's not a career politician. He's just finished his first term as an MP. He comes from a business background, and he is a multimillionaire. He owns seven houses, including his home in one of New Zealand's most affluent suburbs. And, you know, he's he's commented in the past about how he has wanted to be a businessman since he was 12 years old. He worked selling ice cream, washing windows, selling deodorant. He then attended university in New Zealand where he completed a master's in commerce. And then he joined the multinational firm Unilever, where he worked for 16 years for the company around the world before he returned home to lead in New Zealand. Mm. And there he sort of oversaw a record, you know, record profits. He was awarded CEO of the year in 2015. He became one of the highest paid CEOs of a listed company in New Zealand. And he was also criticised for being a bit remote with the airline's workers and really attending union meetings. And then in 2020, he threw his hat in the ring for the National Party. And there hasn't been a lot of detail around why he's made that choice. Some have said it's down to pure ambition. Others have suggested that the former Prime Minister John Key gave him the nudge. He has a ready stash of aphorisms about management and leadership, which maybe is is expected coming from a business background. Um, He doesn't drink alcohol or coffee. He's Christian, uh, but he describes his faith as personal. Now, Mr Speaker, it seems it has become acceptable to stereotype those who have a Christian faith in public life as being extreme. So I will say a little about my Christian faith. I mean, Luxon has actually spoken very little of his religion, apart from in his maiden speech. It has anchored me, given my life purpose and shaped my values, and it puts me in the context of something bigger than myself. 
My faith has a strong influence on who I am and how I relate to people. I see Jesus showing compassion, tolerance and care for others. He doesn't judge, discriminate or reject people. He loves unconditionally. But there were some revelations that he had once attended an evangelical church, which, you know, roused some suspicion in New Zealand, which is resolutely secular and pretty uncomfortable with public displays of faith. But it's definitely something that he has kept pretty close to his chest, probably in light of of that discomfort within New Zealand. Mm. Well, there was some controversy during the election campaign about some of Luxon's beliefs. What happened there? Well, so a rumour started spreading, suggesting that Luxon didn't believe dinosaurs existed. Dinosaurs! They're cool and they existed. I can't believe I have to say that. This came about because a comedian, Guy Williams, released a trailer on social media for his podcast that showed Luxon was avoiding questions about his belief in dinosaurs uh, following a tip-off that Williams had had. What's your favourite dinosaur? T-Rex. I heard a rumour that you don't believe in dinosaurs. No, I, uh, T-Rex is a great dinosaur. Do you believe dinosaurs are real? Yeah. <laughs> didn't answer the question. He then went on to deny that he didn't believe and dinosaurs during a radio interview. You know, as I said to you, when you're talking dinosaurs for the last two days, um, whether I believe in them or not, which I do for the record, <laughs> um, but a random question, I don't know why I get asked it, but, you know, that becomes a major news story. And you're sitting there going, but actually today we've got people who have trying to find $700 a fortnight to pay for their mortgage. We've yeah. got. And he also tweeted, of course dinosaurs are real. My favourite is the tax reliefosaurus. <laughs> and then said it's not extinct but hasn't been spotted for long years, so making a bit of a joke <laughs> at his own expense. So now New Zealand has appeared to shift to the right after six years of Labour governments. Just how conservative is Luxon? I mean, he's hard to pigeonhole. Um, he he is centre-right, but it, it would be difficult to say that his politics are purely conservative. I mean, he's identified greenhouse gas emissions and child poverty as particular matters of concern. He's spoken early in his political career about attempts to learn te reo Māori, New Zealand's Indigenous language. And I think it could be possibly easy to make the leap that his particular personal faith could make him socially conservative. But you know, he hasn't courted some of the minor parties' views on things like trans issues, and he has been firm in his position over not tampering with abortion rights. But he is conservative and neoliberal in other ways. So he, he really has that belief that if you work hard enough, you try hard enough, then you can get what you need. You know, he pushes this idea of individual responsibility, putting a premium on things like education, but looking to diminish the social safety net in order to get people into work. And that's, you know, regardless of whether they're able to or not. He's proposed tax relief for property investors, high earners. He wants to give employers more power. And, you know, the classic tough on crime approach wants to bring back the widely panned boot camps for young offenders, three strikes law, which ensured maximum sentences without parole for a third offence. And those things have been widely criticised as being ineffective. So I think he is more to the right than what we've seen in the previous years, but he himself I don't think is more conservative than we've seen from other governments in New Zealand. 
So what was the Nationals' pitch to New Zealand voters in this election? So, I mean, he really campaigned to New Zealanders that, you know, he was there to get New Zealand's mojo back. I mean, New Zealand has been in a pretty pessimistic national mood in the last couple of years. And he really pushed this idea that, you know, every New Zealander should be able to get ahead and that he and his party would steer the country out of a cost of living crisis. I mean, New Zealand's been battling really high inflation. I think Stats New Zealand said that between June 2022 and June 2023, the cost of living rose 7.2% for average households. And a lot of that was due to significant increases in food prices. Then on top of that, you have rising fuel prices, extraordinary housing costs, be it through the prices of housing itself, rising interest rates, through rents. All of this is affecting not just the lower income brackets, but the middle income earners too. So it was consistently cited as a top issue for New Zealanders in polls and surveys. And it's not surprising at all that it's something that the party's honed in on. You mentioned cost of living there. How did the issues in this election compare to the issues that were important to the last couple of campaigns in New Zealand? Well, I mean, if we begin with the 2017 election, there was a fair amount of stock put in uh, issues of climate change. And, and that was something that Jacinda Ardern, you know, I think she built part of her profile on. She she talked a lot about, you know, child poverty, well-being, the politics of kindness. Mm. This election, I think, you know, there has been much more of a focus on things like crime, uh, the cost of living, and that particular question of climate change in particular was really sidelined. I mean, for instance, you know, it was really discussed in major televised leaders' debates, which, I mean, it's extraordinary, really, given that the country had earlier this year experienced a catastrophic cyclone. And in the final leaders' debate, it wasn't mentioned once, which goes to show just how little stock was placed on it as an issue for this election. Mm. Well, now that the election is over, what are the biggest priorities on the national's agenda going forward? So I think it's going to be a pretty interesting uh, few years because it's going to be difficult to know how policies uh, are going to play out. I mean, we, we're looking at um, a potentially three-party coalition Basically, we are in political limbo for the next few weeks until the special votes come in. Uh, And those special votes are votes that are made from overseas or outside of a voter's electorate. And I think there's roughly about 570,000 of them to be counted. Mm. What's interesting about those special votes is they traditionally veer left, which means that the National Act majority, which it has at the moment, which is a really a very wafer-thin majority at the moment, could be chipped away. And that is going to put the National Party in a position of facing a fairly tough choice. So the National Party, which is centre-right, is going to need its traditional coalition partner act, which is a libertarian right party, very focused on slashing public uh, spending, getting rid of what it calls the bloated bureaucracy. Um, but they're also likely going to need the populist New Zealand First Party. And that party is less inclined to cut things like public spending 
or offer tax relief. So you're going to see a situation where there is going to be a clashing in a lot of those policy arenas and whether, you know, National or ACT are going to be able to get some of their big policies over the line. You know, it's going to be interesting to see if the three parties, which one politics professor described to me as a three-headed monster, are able to work together. Next, why did New Zealanders desert the Labour Party? Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here with a quick note about The Guardian. As you're probably aware, Guardian Australia's journalism is editorially independent, meaning we set our own agenda. We don't have a billionaire owner, nor do we answer to shareholders, so we're free from commercial bias. And this independence matters because it means we're able to challenge the powerful and hold them to account. Unlike many news organisations, we have not put up a paywall. We chose a model that means our reporting is open to everyone and funded by our readers who can afford to pay. Every contribution, whether big or small, counts. If you're able to contribute and have a minute, head to theguardian.com forward slash support full story. We've also linked to this on the full story page. Thanks. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Borough order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST. I think many people were shocked when the former New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern resigned earlier this year. What has happened to the Labour Party since she left? I mean, I think it was always going to be really, really difficult for the Labour Party following Ardern's departure, and in particular for Chris Hipkins, who took over from her. I mean, Hipkins inherited a party from one of the country's most popular leaders ever. Mm. So I think it was always going to be a very difficult set of cards to play. And I think, you know, in terms of Ardern, she had an astronomical rise as leader. You know, she came in and she was young, she was exciting, she was bold, visionary. And I think she really managed to capture attention with, say, people that perhaps weren't necessarily that interested in politics, also particularly because of her politics of kindness, which really became her sort of brand over those those next years. And so, you know, Jacinda Mania, that, that's what it became known as, you know, saw her and her party's um, massive turnaround in 2017. Mm. And then, of course, came COVID. And so with COVID, you know, her swift, tough COVID policies saved many lives and, and it was considered world leading. But in the end, those COVID policies uh, started to take their toll. The party was struggling to make headway on some of its other big policies around housing, the environment, the cost of living, and and some of those rumblings of discontent uh, started to emerge. And I think, you know, from there, once Ardern left, there was the sense that they wanted to draw a line 
under their pandemic years and try and create a new face for the party. Mm. But Hipkins never managed to get or amass that same popularity or star power that Ardern had. And, you know, his response, I think, to the previous few years was to really play to a centrist base and I think lost a lot of that aspirational and visionary style politics in the process. Mm. In hindsight, do you think that Labor could have won this election if Jacinda Ardern had stayed? Honestly, I doubt it. I think the writing was on the wall for Labor and Ardern's popularity was, you know, ailing towards the end of last year. And I think, you know, unless they had been able to come back with some of their big, bold policy visions, you know, something like the capital gains tax, which which most of New Zealanders actually want, they might have been able to turn that around. But, but Ardern had ruled that out. Hipkins had ruled it out. And I, I just think that anything they had tried to do from the end of last year onwards, whether it was Ardern or somebody else, was probably going to be too little too late. Well, Internationally, we're seeing younger people voting for the first time and supporting more progressive parties. But there are some polls that suggest the opposite is happening in New Zealand right now, that young people are actually moving to the right. Why, why do you think that is? I think it's a really interesting shift. I think, you know, youth voters we know are volatile in their voting habits. Um, they may have just wanted a change after some hard years trying to navigate school and university during a pandemic, I think there possibly is some frustration over Labor's inability to follow through on some of their bigger ideas around things like the environment. But National Party in ACT, also this election, this campaign, did a really good job of going to where the youth are. So they they really put a lot up on social media. They had strong campaigns on things like TikTok, Instagram, And Labor really didn't have as much of a presence in those areas. Also, I mean, Chris Hipkins, you know, bless him, but he doesn't have that same sort of engagement directly with the public that his predecessor Ardern had. You know, she was really on social media a lot, Mm. doing live feeds, responding to people in real time, and he hasn't managed to do that. But I think, you know, it's also... You know, there's. I think there's an element here of, you know, overseas where you've seen that shift from younger voters towards the left. There's perhaps a response happening there to the leadership of those places. For example, Trump, Bolsonaro, Boris Johnson. I mean, at the same time, those those leaders were coming in, we had Ardern. So there hasn't perhaps been that same level of despair, worry and anger that, that other countries have experienced that would push our voters, young voters, left. Mm. But, I mean, it's, I think ultimately it's hard to know if the support for National is about rewarding National or merely punishing Labor. What do you think Labor will need to do to win back support from the youth and also from other voters in New Zealand? I think in order for Labor to start winning back some support, I think... They're going to need to return to some of their big aspirational policy ideas and they're going to need to show that there's real political will to get things done, that they're not going to tinker, they're not going to delay, they're not going to, you know, play to 
just a centrist vote. Uh, They need to take bigger risks. And then they need to follow through on that. And I think probably they need to introduce some exciting new talent into the mix because at the moment there isn't anyone particularly stand out, especially not not in the realm of, say, Jacinda Ardern. That was Eva Corlett, a reporter for Guardian Australia based in Wellington, New Zealand. You can read more of Eva's coverage of the New Zealand election at theguardian.com, including her recent article titled New Zealand in Political Limbo as National Considers Shape of Coalition. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Joe Koning, who also wrote our theme music. Sound design and mixing was by Daniel Simo. The executive producer was Hannah Parks. And if you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe or follow Full Story wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also leave us a review. I'm Jane Lee. Catch you next time.